You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. Sam, it's been a couple of weeks, and uh, there's been a couple of Supreme Court cases that have been decided we should probably spend some time talking about today. Uh, Whatever are you talking about, Christopher? So we will talk about the DACA-related case in just a little bit, but the first one is actually three different cases that I believe basically got decided at the same time by the Supreme Court uh, under the umbrella of Bostock versus Clayton County. Uh, that's Clayton County, Georgia. Uh, the other two cases being the Harris Funeral Home Incorporation versus the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission uh, and Altitude Express Incorporated versus Zarda. And basically, all three of these cases uh, ha- pertain to the uh, discrimination against employees on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. And in fact, uh, between those three cases, you're going to see both of those things uh, mentioned with Bostock versus Clayton County. I believe uh, the issue was uh, there was a homosexual man who was fired um, with uh, the Harris Funeral Homes Incorporated versus Equal Opportunity and uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission had to do with a transgender individual. Um, and of course, this is it. This case is sort of shocking to me for two reasons. Uh, the result in and of itself is, is a little shocking with one of the cases in particular. Um, and then beyond that, uh, beyond one of the cases in particular being shocking, uh, the person who wrote the opinion of the court and the uh, decision was decided, I believe, six to three. Uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, being the justice to actually not only affirm the decision, but write the opinion itself uh, is probably more shocking, honestly, than any other news that came out related to this case. Right. And especially with with it being Gorsuch. This, depending on how it's played, could deflate a lot of Trump's momentum. I don't want to immediately pivot to election politics, but a lot of people were really gunning for Trump because of the potential to pick Supreme Court justices. Uh, I know people uh, that publicly stated, I don't approve of Donald Trump, but I'm voting for him because I believe he would put better people on the Supreme Court. And when Gorsuch was put forward, it wasn't nearly as controversial as Kavanaugh, but there were different questions that were going around, and Gorsuch was famous for being a textualist and pushing forward the idea of reading the Constitution and interpreting it as a written document. Not as a living document, but just one where we say, okay, what do the words of the Constitution or of this set of law codes say? And are they consistent with one another? Is this new law being proposed consistent? Is this action consistent with what the laws actually say? And this is also important because of a concept called judicial activism. Uh, The idea... 
uh, and really, in some, on some level, it's an accusation that uh, especially Democrats, liberals, leftists, you can put scare quotes around any one of those to your heart's content, uh, because they aren't able to get laws passed that reflect what they want, at least not on a time frame that they find acceptable, they instead turn to the Supreme Court. It's why the court is such a hotly debated thing. It's why there was a meltdown all over how, uh, for example, Obama was denied being able to put Merrick Garland forward as a, uh, a court pick. It's why things went nuclear when Kavanaugh was being put forward, not just because of the allegations against uh, Justice Kavanaugh, but... Because of the idea that if you put a Supreme Court justice on the bench, that has implications for, in Gorsuch and Kavanaugh's cases, especially potentially decades to come. Well, and you know, you mentioned Kavanaugh. There's a couple of things worth mentioning there. First, uh, as it pertains to the uh, the the case, of course, he dissented, uh, which you would expect him to dissent uh, based on his track record. Um, based on his reputation. And the other thing is with uh, with Kavanaugh, you know, you wonder the cynical part of me wonders, of course, if some of those allegations, um, if some of those allegations arose as a direct result of uh, <clears throat> of the outrage over him possibly being nominated, not necessarily to dismiss the allegations wholesale, but uh, at the same time, those allegations the the evidence that was presented um, in support of those allegations very quickly disintegrated. Uh, it's it's this is not a case where there's you know some pretty strong evidence against Justice Kavanaugh and people just ignored it. Um, it's a case where every time the evidence was tried, it just fell apart completely. And so it, it, it makes you wonder at the very least, but at the same time, I'm not going to go full bore and say that the allegations only arose uh, as a result of as a result of the outrage. But uh, certainly uh, the coverage of it, uh, I think, I think was uh, a product of the outrage over uh, less about it being Justice Kavanaugh specifically and more about it being, you know, Trump's nominee. Um Trump's nominee and a guy that go ahead. Uh, finish your thought. Sure. Uh, Trump's nominee and a guy that uh, and a guy that probably reflects the values uh, of the average Trump voter uh, a little bit more clearly and a little bit more um, <clears throat> well, a little bit more clearly than uh, than Gorsuch does. Right. And to that point, less about the accusations, but two things come to mind that always tickle me. Uh, when you uh, when you actually look at the timelines, I remember when the Kavanaugh nomination was announced, uh, there were images of press uh, releases being sent by different uh, typically left leaning organizations where they had sent the email out and they had forgotten to actually put Kavanaugh's name in the press release. And you could clearly see like it was uh, Donald Trump has appointed insert candidates name here 
uh, has put forward insert candidate name here for the Supreme Court or like, just basically it was like they had the form letter ready to fill out and didn't fill it out in full. Uh, there's that. There's also the fact that people tend to overlook this, but Kavanaugh and Garland were co-workers, so to speak. They served on the same courts at times. And over 95% of the time, I think someone actually broke this down, over 95% of the time, uh, Kavanaugh and Garland made, uh, agreed. Uh, they were on the same side of a decision. They, uh, In times where they interacted with one another judicially, they were in full agreement. And so it was especially humorous, not to derail entirely, but it was especially humorous before the allegations came out to see the furor that came up because... Trump put forward a um, a nominee that I believe was his way of trying to make a peace offering of, okay, I put a, a hardline textualist on the court. Now let's look at putting someone on forward that some of you might find more agreeable, which, by the way, since that didn't go over, I think that... Democrats especially have exhausted any goodwill that they could try to siphon. So, And I hope that any Republican that has the job of putting forth a Supreme Court nominee remembers that and goes with someone like Amy Coney Barrett. But that's beside the point. Um, Kavanaugh was similar to Garland. They were virtually identical judicially. And he wasn't good enough, even before the allegations. But moving beyond that, uh, I just it's noteworthy how important the Supreme Court is, which on one level, I think, makes sense. They are the interpreters of the law, so to speak. On the other hand, we have given an inordinate amount of power to the Supreme Court over time because they have been treated as, well, if we can't get a law put forward, we'll just have the Supreme Court interpret the law the way that we want it to be interpreted. Uh, I saw this uh, posted a few days ago. I don't remember who said it. Otherwise, I would attribute it to them. But they just made the point. Functionally speaking, the United States Constitution and United States law codes mean what five people says it means. Or five people say it means. And so, that's a big deal. So then the question becomes, what do we think about what, in this case, six uh, people and in the DACA case five, but we'll get to that. Uh, what do we think about what? Uh, what do we think about what the what those six individuals who affirmed this case uh, be, believe about what the law says about uh, sexual discrimination or discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation uh, and gender identity? Well. Let me actually, because there was a quote, and I want to actually quote it correctly, uh, from Gorsuch's, all right, here it is, from the, from the opinion uh, that Gorsuch uh, penned, an employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex, Neil Gorsuch, or Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote in his opinion. Sex plays a, a necessary and undisguisable role 
in the decision exactly what Title VII forbids. So his argument is functionally that discrimination on the basis of sex, but that includes homosexuality and transgenderism. And I can understand where that argument uh, could go, but Alito and Thomas argue, and I think they're correct, that sex in Title VII cannot and should not be read to include sexual orientation or gender identity. And this is the problem with textualism uh, and originalism. To be a textualist is not enough, some would argue. You also have to be an originalist. Uh, Chris, in some ways, this is actually fairly similar to how we were trained to perform exegesis in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just a matter of saying, okay, what do the words mean? Because if, like, for instance, if you, like, I have a Christian standard Bible just right over in front of me, I can walk over and grab. If I grab that off of the desk, or in this case, my bookshelf, and put it in front of me, read it, and say, okay, what does this word mean? And I look it up in a dictionary, I'm not properly interpreting that document. I could make an interpretation, but we would argue it's not valid because, as you know, it's not about just what the word on the page means. It's what the word on the page meant originally. And I think it's fair to argue that Title VII originally used sex in the classical sense of the term, sex as an expression of one's anatomy and biology rather than one's socialization. And so this is really a question of does the court have the authority to redefine terms? And I don't think they do, controversially enough. But Alito and Thomas also argued that the proper course of action for this should have been to put forth legislation, which I also generally agree with. So I, looking at this, the decision really incorporated three separate cases, as we mentioned, Um, you know, with regard to Bostock versus Clayton County alongside these other two. Um, and, And as best as I can tell, the, I, I don't know that these should have been grouped together. Um, Right. I I guess I understand why, um, but I don't think these should be grouped together for for two separate uh, two separate reasons. The first is that um, gender identity and sexual orientation um, are are two separate issues. Uh, are two separate issues. Um, and then the other thing is with regard to the context of these things, uh, even where I think two of them overlapped in that Altitude Express versus Zarda and Bostock versus Clayton County uh, were uh, sorry, were, were both on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, one was done in a private context and the Botox, Botox Bostock case was done uh, in a public context, that is, um, Bostock was an employee of, of Clayton County, Georgia. He, he was an employee of the government. Uh, and I think that has different ramifications. Um, you know, when we talk about, when we talk about this, there, I, I think there, 
there is a difference between um, between a privately held company, uh, be it a mom and pop shop or you know a Fortune 500 company, uh, making these decisions, uh, and the government itself making these decisions. Um, you know, there, I, I think there is a substantial difference, in fact, uh, between those two contexts to the point where uh, I'm not convinced that a government employee should be fired on the basis of uh, of sexual orientation, um, while at the same time acknowledging that uh, for for a private company, um, and this is where the you know, as you said, controversial opinion. Um, as the law reads now, uh, that a private company should have that right with the understanding that, like you said, if, if that wants to be changed, then introduce legislation that provides more protection rather than the Supreme Court, uh, setting the principle. And now the legislation needs to happen. Otherwise, uh, I, well, I don't know what's going to happen moving forward. I cannot imagine this fight is over, uh, on either side. Um, but am I, am I wrong in sort of seeing a difference here between a, a government employee being fired over this and someone uh, in a more private setting being fired over this? Yes, absolutely. Now, like, depending on whether you want me to expound on that or just be just, just shoot from the hip dead center about it, uh, what it really boils down to is ultimately that no private company, none of them, have the capacity to send someone like it like if you work for the government it is different than working for a private company because private companies don't send men with guns to your house to make you give them money and beyond providing a service to you that you agree to pay them for or, or in the context of an employment contract, you working for them by the terms of your contract and them compensating you based on the terms of your contract, however simple or complex it may be, there are no obligations between you or that company either way. With the government, there are several obligations expected both ways. Um, and so there are many ways in which that plays out, but... Um, the, that to me that again I know it's I'm sure that Chris you're tired of hearing it I'm sure there are other people that are tired of hearing it if they have a monopoly on violence as long as they have that monopoly they they have to be held to a different standard and they have to be held to a higher standard I think whether that happens all the time that's a different story but you mentioned that uh, the idea of law and legislation. This isn't the first time Obergefell, when same-sex marriage, uh, so-called, became the law of the land, so to speak, overnight. It was the Supreme Court flexing its judicial muscle, and even then, the dissenting opinion wasn't, we have some deep-seated objection to same-sex marriage in and of itself, or we have some deep-seated objection to letting other people outside our religious faiths conduct themselves how they see fit. It's, if you want this so badly, convince enough people that you can get legislation passed. 
this is an inverting of what's supposed to be a representative uh, or, or a democratic republic. And uh, I believe that decision was that five years ago now. Maybe. I what think was... so. Yes, I believe it was 2015. Let me double check. Like it's 2015 or 2012. I know those are very different things, but uh, that's it's it's gonna be 2015 because I I remember where I was uh, when it when it happened. I was I was at a convention, uh, but I don't I don't exactly remember what year. So, but uh, based off your information, I think it's gonna going to have been 2015. Uh, uh, we're both gonna be wrong. It's gonna be 2014. Uh, it looks like it was 2015. Oh, there you go. Um, Argued it, April 28th, 2015. Decided June 26th, 2015. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's something where, you know, the... With, with regard to sexual orientation and gender identity, um, they're really two separate issues, and... I would, I would like to, and maybe, maybe people are going to say I only want that because I'm on one side of the issue, uh, from a moral perspective, from a spiritual perspective. Uh, but I would think, uh, people on both sides would, would want those issues solved separately, um, for the sake of being able to go into the nuances of, of the issue. Um, I, I want to dive a little deeper into specifically the, the, the transgender case uh, that is Harris Funeral Homes Incorporated versus the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, uh, I'm going to read the little blurb uh, exactly as it's written on Wikipedia, um, and then we will, uh, I suppose, we'll discuss it from there uh, because this is the one, this is the facet of uh, of the Supreme Court case I find the most interesting uh, and frankly the most contemporary as far as issues are concerned. Um, this is much more hot button than, than the other two cases. Amy Stevens was a funeral home employee who had presented herself as male up until 2013. In 2014, she wrote to her employer, the Harris Funeral Homes Group, so that they could be prepared for her decision to undergo gender reassignment surgery, telling them that, at, that after a vacation, she planned to return dressed in female attire that otherwise followed the employee handbook. She was fi fired shortly after the letter was sent, and the Equal Oppor Employment Opportunity Commission helped to represent Stevens in court. The district court ruled for the funeral homes, stating Title VII did not cover transgender people, and that as a religious organization under the, under the Religious Freedoms Restoration Act, the company had a right to dismiss Stephen for nonconformity. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the decision, concluded Title VII did include protection for transgender people, which Harris Funeral Homes petitioned the Supreme Court to review. About a month before the Supreme Court decision, Amy Stevens died from health complications, but representation of her case continued through a trust fund she had established before her death. The case was heard on October 8, 2019, along with two other cases, the ones we've mentioned, which dealt with Title VII protection related to sexual orientation. The court ruled in a 6-3 decision under Bostock, but covering all three cases on June 15, 2020, that would have been last week, uh, that Title VII protection extends to gay and transgender people. So that's a lot. Um, there's, um, of course, uh, regardless of 
anything else going on. We hate to hear of, of Stephen's death. Um, I, I did not sure. actually know. I didn't actually know that before reading the Wikipedia blurb here. Um, so what, uh, what sticks out to you about this, uh, about anything I've just read or anything that you've picked up on in addition to, uh, what's going on, um, with this case? The major thing that sticks out to me, just number one with a bullet is going to be the question of religious liberty. You mentioned that the religious, uh, freedom restoration act, I believe was called was invoked. Uh, in defense of the funeral home, and that was denied. Um, that's going to be very interesting going forward because historically, I believe it was in 2012 that it was decided that religious organizations are still allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex. Uh, that having the then the implication of no, you cannot sue a church because they refuse to employ you as a pastor if you're a woman. And I want to say also the question of same-sex attracted religious or clergy, we'll say, was also a part of those decisions. In fact, that may have been the decision. But that has implications. A lot of people, uh, Chris, while we were at Freed Hardeman, uh, a religious and, uh, you know, a, a, a title X case came up. That had an unintended consequence at Free Hardman. Do you want to know a change that was made to our handbook that almost no one except me noticed? Uh, I certainly didn't notice it, so sure. The requirement for men to keep their hair groomed such that it did not extend past the collar of their shirts. I, I do for remember a, this. For a short portion of our you're a student, you could be reprimanded as a man if your hair was too long. That was an unintended con that change or that being changed, at least as it was told to me, was an unintended consequence of un re of efforts to rebolster enforcement of Title IX. Yeah, it's uh, I didn't realize that was specifically why the change took place. Um, of course, now, I could be. That I, I do want to make the disclaimer that. Go ahead, go ahead. That's four times I've interrupted you now. No, I, I interrupted you. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> okay, I'm saying this, and I am being quiet and letting you talk for a bit. Uh, and again, I want to be clear: I could be mistaken about that. Uh, that was just told to me by an employee of the university at the time. Uh, again, I could be mistaken, or they could have been mistaken. Any number of things, but. I say that one because it's a lighthearted, like, you can look at that and look, oh yeah, like, I, 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 like, and, and that's essentially harmless. Like, if a guy wants to wear his hair to the length that he could be mistaken for a stereotypical Pentecostal woman, that's really not a problem to me. I would wonder if he wears a neck brace when he takes a shower, but beyond that, I'm not that worried about it. The point being, though, it is an unintended consequence. Title IX is primarily about discrimination and harassment, but it had that unintended consequence of, well, now we have to we have to not tell people that they have to cut their hair. So, unintended consequences. I use that phrase a lot. It's the name of a novel. 
And it's an important concept to bear in mind. You have to think not just about what you intend to accomplish, but also what you could have happen that is unintended. And that's going to be the major thing that comes out of this, especially if I understood you rightly about the question of religious freedom. Because if this was a an explicitly religious organization that was told you were in the wrong for firing this person for being a trans, uh, did they undergo sex reassignment surgery? Uh, Chris, was that detailed? Uh, yeah, it says uh, after the vacation, she planned to return dressed in female attire. She was going to undergo gender reassignment surgery. Uh, she was fired after the letter was sent. Uh, Wikipedia, at least the introductory blurb, doesn't actually mention whether or not uh, uh, Stevens underwent the gender reassignment surgery. I, I don't know. Um, right. Uh, yet. I I think so, but I don't have a quote for you to prove prove that either way. Fair enough. All of that to say, I just want to be precise in my language. Unless the rules have changed, a transsexual is a person who has actually undergone the surgery. A transgender person, and they do end up being used interchangeably, but a transgender person can be a person who chooses to live as the opposite gender but has not yet undergone a surgery. A transsexual typically connotes or denotes someone that has explicitly gone through with the reassignment surgery. But anyway, all of that to say, a transsexual or transgender person, if that decision has been made, that could have big consequences for churches, and not just because of transgenderism. Because of sexual orientation and identity and the expression thereof cannot be discriminated against. For instance, Christopher, churches can no longer specify that they want a married man for their open position. Now, granted, that's not going to affect a lot of people. And how many people, for like how like how many men in the churches of Christ are going to sue? a church because during their interview for the minister position, they got asked if they were married in a private company or a government job. You can sue that company if they do that. Not so with churches, that sort of thing could change if this gets enforced and is applied consistently. You have to be prepared for not just the intended outcomes and consequences, but the unintended as well. Well, and, and you mentioned with regard to being an explicitly religious organization, um, I, I I think that might be one level too far even. It's, uh, it, it's if that decision was made for an explicitly spiritual or religious reason, um, because at a certain point, uh, distinguishing between religious organizations um, – on a governmental level, distinguishing between re- religious organizations and non-religious organizations, which are private, making religious decisions, um, becomes some somewhat problematic. Um, you know, there's plenty of mission works, for example, uh, mission-based organizations that receive support from churches uh, that, <clears throat> um, depending on the, the nature of the mission, uh, aren't explicitly uh, religious in nature, or, or at the very least, different 
uh, benevolence work. So like uh, children's homes, for example, um, you know, it is a children's home an explicitly uh, religious organization. No. Do they have religious grounding? Yes. Do they have religious funding? Um, well, plenty of them do. Um, but is it an explicitly religious organization? No, but it could be a private organization making uh, decisions uh, on a spiritual basis. Uh, by the way, this is sort of the issue that separates the government's decision uh, for uh, on this for me from a private decision. The fact that the government uh, shouldn't be, uh, which is something people aren't going to want to hear, but shouldn't be making decisions on a spiritual level because you know, they're not going to make the same decisions that I would want them to make. And they're also not going to make the same decisions, probably, that someone completely opposite from me would want them to make. Um, and so uh, with with exceptions that are um, clear uh, and and clearly detrimental uh, to an office environment, um which I realize is not actually all that specific of language. I, I would not want the government making those uh, sorts of decisions. Um, and I wouldn't want local government offices even making those sorts of decisions. Uh, but yeah, you know, these, these unintended consequences, uh, considering what's going to happen uh, with different organizations. Now with churches of Christ, I'm a little bit interested because Sam, as you know, preachers uh, within Churches of Christ have a very strange employment situation compared to virtually everyone else in every other pro uh, profession. Uh, in that we, if are... I may interject, go ahead. You are correct. In fact, I believe our our uh, accountant, quote unquote, not the show's accountant, but the guy that we both pay to do our taxes and help us get everything squared away every year. He has told me and has publicly stated that if everyone had to file taxes the way that preachers do, uh, they would uh, the IRS would have built every IRS building would have already been burned down. Um, yes. Uh, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, as a reminder to those of you listening, the the filing and payment deadline uh, for tax year 2019 is uh July, what is it, 15th? Because uh, it got pushed back. I believe back. so, yes. I pushed back three months. Uh, I've already filed, though, so hooray. Um, I filed in uh, January. I'm very glad I got that out of the way. And I think I had everything squared away in February. Yeah, well. That is the way to do it if you can. Yeah, Not everyone yeah. can. I understand that. But if you can, get it done early. Yeah, something, something pride. Um, you know, I... I with that situation, so I, I don't actually know how that's going to affect Churches of Christ specifically, just because the employment situation is is so weird. It's it's not a situation where um, because it's a contracted situation, and it, uh, generally speaking, and it's not. I'm strictly an employee of the congregation. Uh, I don't know how that changes the legalese, if you will. Um, and how these cases interact with it. I, I do know uh, it'll be interesting. Um, you know, someone has brought up, and I, I've forgotten who exactly I saw this from, uh, but what happens if you have a case where you got a minister on staff um, who uh, sometime after being there comes out as uh, 
transgender and is uh, would look to identify as female or comes out as homosexual. Um, do they have legal grounds against the church? Um, you know, because on, you know, hiring is, is one issue. Um, hiring someone who has uh, a sexual ethic that is very clearly different from the one the church holds uh, is one thing. But firing someone who you have already brought in because their sexual ethic, at least publicly, has changed uh, is an entirely separate issue. Um, and one, I think, more likely uh, to affect churches of Christ specifically. Um, now, as far as uh, religious organizations that practice the ordination of of ministers, pastors, preachers, what have you, um, have overseeing bodies, hierarchies, which if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with Churches of Christ, uh, we are autonomous. Uh, each congregation sort of rules itself. There's no, ordin- uh, there's no ordaining body. There's no overseeing body outside of the local leadership of a congregation. Uh, but for groups that do have those things, I'm, I'm curious uh, how this affects what they do and and sort of what language gets changed in different contracts and what sort of fears that they have. Uh, because, like I said, I, I'm more worried about the issues developing after a person has already been hired who they would not suspect to have a different sexual ethic. Um, it'll be... It'll be interesting to see. Um, and of course, that's not that's not to speak at all of uh, ancillary issues, which have always been sort of surrounding the situation with regard to, you know, whose weddings do we perform? Whose funerals do we perform? Uh, what if we if we try to use the building for outreach purposes? What events do we and don't we have at, at our local church buildings? Um, some of those things are going to be directly impacted or at least directly reconsidered as a result of uh, this case. Right. And even beyond that, uh, I'm, I just want, I literally had a whole coherent thought put together. Oh, I got it. I'm very sorry about that. Listeners. Uh, uh, It'll really, ideally, I would like to think that the scenario would be, at least in like the Churches of Christ, for instance, I would like to think that it would be similar to what happens when a preacher or teacher has some major shift in their beliefs. Uh, just, again, for instance, I don't know of anyone that this has happened to. Because I live in northeast Mississippi, our little churches are are all kind of different and squared away, and our politics are all different, and our arguments aren't y'all's arguments. But again, let's say hypothetically, a preacher, uh, after studying, after thinking over the issue, he's come to the conclusion that his beliefs align much more closely with the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, the PCUSA. Normally, what that would entail is him just going to the elders and saying, I'm very sorry. I know that this puts all of us in a difficult spot, but my beliefs are now at this point so fundamentally different 
that I cannot serve as a minister here. Or having the elders come to them and say, you know, we've noticed the positions that you're taking uh, publicly, your stated positions are such that they are radically different, and that would put you in this camp. And there would be some kind of amicable leaving of just saying, look, in this application it would be, look, I understand this congregation's position on sexuality and the expression thereof. Uh, recently, I have, you know, after serious inflection and soul searching, I've come to the conclusion that I, I want to identify sexually and with reference to gender as a woman. And that disqualifies me from holding this position. And as such, I am stepping down. Generally, that, that would be the ideal of saying, look, we have irreconcilable differences. Let's part our ways amicably. Is that going to happen every time? Is that going to happen most of the time? Probably not. I, I just, I don't see it happen. That's what well, happens, if it happens at all. But it, And, of course, the problem is those doctrinal differences, by and large, aren't actually codified by U.S. law, whereas this is something that was just, uh, I suppose, through the opinion of the court, uh, codified, uh, at least in some way. Now, we'll see what legislation follows this up, because assuredly there's going to be some legislation uh, that follows this up, um, either to strengthen the Supreme Court's opinion or weaken it. Uh, you know, if the issue is, you know, the vagueness of the term sex, well, let's, you know, we'll see if the the term is left vague for too much longer. Um, I... I'm curious uh, to see how it's going to affect churches. I am not um, I'm not very optimistic about what this is going to look like moving forward, Uh, because, I mean, Sam, you know, as well as I do, that there are individuals even uh, that, you know, even within conservative churches of Christ and even that go to conservative uh, schools who reject uh, a non-biblical sexual ethic wholesale. Uh, those individuals don't, uh, and eventually in many of their lives, they start to practice, uh, some of those things. And, um, you know, some of them end up in, in ministry. And so we're not talking about things that are 20, 25 years down the pipeline. We might start seeing challenges to that as soon as later this year, um, you know, and it just, it's only going to take one. Uh, it's only going to take one for this to be uh, an issue that gets on our radar in a way that we never thought it would. Um, you know, it's and so, like you said, I, I I don't think that there's going to be a nice, clean resolution when there are uh, differences between an overseeing eldership uh, and a local preacher on sexual ethics. Um, I think congregations would do well. Uh, to spend time now uh, discussing um, exactly how this ruling interacts with with them um, and discussing now uh, sort of how to move forward. And so you, any other thoughts about this case uh, that you want to uh, you want to offer at this point? Because I uh, we, we've got a whole other one we want to talk about and we're, we're about 45 minutes in already. Uh, actually, yes, and I'll try to be very quick about oh, it. It, it may seem like an odd comparison, but um, 
a uh, a point that a lot of people in our little religious brotherhood, if I can use that term, uh, that we kind of forget about or, or gloss over because it's not always immediately relevant. It's it, I don't think it's like malicious or like they're trying to hide something. But there is a long tradition of pacifism and not and political non-involvement in the churches of Christ. Uh, David Lipscomb was very adamant about Christians not needing to get involved. And I want to say he himself was an ardent pacifist. Try not to sneeze, excuse me. But um, during World War One and Two, especially, when drafts were declared, that created issues because there were Christians on both sides of that issue. And in the Churches of Christ especially, this came up because one of the exemptions you could take as a as a Christian was either you could get an exemption from the draft on the grounds that you were training to join the clergy. So for us, that would be going to freedom and getting a Bible degree. Or saying that because of my religious beliefs, I cannot in good conscience participate in war. And that created difficulties because with other Christian groups, they can say, okay, here are our confessional documents. Like certain Presbyterians or certain flavors of Presbyterians can say, here is the Westminster Standard or Westminster Confession of Faith. This is expounded on in the Westminster Larger Catechism and Shorter Catechisms. And here are our positions generally on participation in war by a Christian. And so we have qualified. It's been that way for 500 years. So, well, in that case, it would have been closer to two or 300 years at that time. But you get my point. Uh, certain, like Baptists, Southern Baptists can say the Baptist faith and message either does or doesn't address war. I don't know. I haven't read the Baptist faith and message. London Baptist Confession of 68. And point being, there was documentation, consistent documentation that a person could sit late claim to and say, I am a member of this religious body. This is what this text unambiguously says about this. And because I am a member of this religious body and have agreed to be subject to this religious body's interpretations as put forward in this document, I can or I can't participate. And so various leaders within the churches of Christ and the Christian church at the time, the disciples of Christ, they ended up having to write letters uh, to different officials explaining, look, I get it. This is kind of a weird setup. I know most of you are more familiar with different religious bodies, but uh, there's autonomy. There's not uniformity in our positions in the Churches of Christ. But when, if a person comes to you and says, I'm a member of the Churches of Christ, and they tell you that they're a pacifist, they're not just making it up, basically. Uh, that there is, in fact, a history of people within our movement that have claimed pacifism. And it's not universal, but it's there. And some of those people's claims were accepted, some were rejected. So I wonder what will have to happen if it becomes a question of, okay, what does this religious body at large say about this question? Because, Chris, as you know, Having Church of Christ on the sign doesn't mean anything because we don't have a copyrighted trademark. Anyone can put that on their sign. 
a lot of the times uh, the reason you'll see multiple congregations with the name Church of Christ on the sign is because one of the congregations didn't like what the other congregation was practicing. Um, you know, and of course, you, you've got such diversity in uh, in a, on, on a number of different issues. Uh, of course, some of our listeners will identify two or three of those almost immediately. Um, but the further and further we go along, the further and further apart uh, the extremes get from one another, uh, from people who fly under the uh, uh, under the Church of Christ banner, if you will. And so I'll I, I'll be curious like you to see uh, what ends up happening as a result. Um, there's not the way that we're set up, and I do not believe it is a way worth compromising or sacrificing uh, to any extent with regard to local autonomy. Um, but the way that we're set up means that um, there's not going to be a general consensus. I think there might be something to said to be said for preachers specifically uh, coming out of different schools. Um, that there might be uh, there might be a, a a way to lay claim to some of these things uh, depending on your education, given that uh, given that schools do have an overseeing board, if you will. Uh, you know, there's a board of trustees at Free Hartman, for example. Um, there's local elderships overseeing uh, the schools uh, of preaching and and, and whatnot. Um, but as far as churches of Christ wholesale. Um, that's that presents a challenge that is going to bring mixed results, just like it did with the question of of war, as you mentioned. So um, we had planned initially on recording this podcast either last Tuesday or last Wednesday. Uh, the the ruling we talked about, the first one we talked about, came out I think last Monday. Um, with regard to the sexual orientation and gender identity cases. The second one uh, actually came out this past week. Uh, This is the Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California. Uh, I'm just going to read the introductory paragraph from Wikipedia again. I feel like that's becoming a part of my job description here with the podcast. Uh, But I'm going to read the introductory Uh, paragraph or two here again on this case. That way uh, we sort of get some of the details of what this is about and we'll chat about it for just a little bit because I have a few thoughts. Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California was a United States Supreme Court case in which the court held that it Court held that a 2017 U.S. Department of Homeland Security order to rescind the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, this is going to be known as DACA from here on out, immigration program was arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedure Act and reversed the order. DACA was established in 2012 under President Barack Obama to allow children brought into the United States without proper immigration authorization to defer deportation and maintain good behavior to receive a work permit to remain in the U.S. Such children were also called dreamers based on the failed Dream Act. On his election, President Trump vowed to end DACA. The DHS rescinded the program in in June of 2017. Numerous lawsuits were filed, including one by the University of California system, 
which many dreamers attended, asserting the rescission would or asserting that the rescission violated rights under the APA and the right to procedural due process under the Fifth Amendment. The university sought and received an injunction from District Court Judge William Alsup to require DHS to maintain the DACA until the case was decided. DHS challenged this order to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which upheld Judge Alsup's ruling in November 2018 and ordered the DHS to maintain DACA throughout the U.S. DHS petitioned the Supreme Court, which accepted the case in June of last year, joining it with two other DACA-related lawsuits, Trump versus NAACP, which had been filed by the NAACP, who challenged that rescinding DACA had a disproportionate impact on minorities, and Wolf versus Vidal, which had been filed by a DACA recipient. Oral arguments were heard November of last year in the 5-4 decision given on June 18, 2020. While all nine justices concurred in part on the judgment, the five in majority, with Chief Justice John Roberts writing for the majority, focused only on the application of due process of the APA and the DHS's decision to rescind DACA and found it unlawful. Justice Clarence Thomas, in his dissent in part and joined by others, argued that the court should have further evaluated the legality of the original DACA program as a part of their review. Sam, I, I think with all the news that's going on, uh, both with regard, frankly, to the other Supreme Court case, as well as um, some of the national news still surrounding the uh, still surrounding racial issues and uh, other ancillary issues and also things that don't matter, like attendance numbers at Trump's rally in Tulsa on Saturday. I think this is a Supreme Court decision that's going to be very quickly forgotten if we're not careful. I would tend to agree, but very quickly, just one comment about the rally numbers. That is such a shell game to me because it was very much, well, uh, if you have that rally, you're putting lives at risk. Don't go to the rally. Don't go to the rally. Don't go to the rally. Uh, AOC who recently, I'll give her credit, made one very good point. Thus far, in my opinion, she has made one very good point during her tenure in office, but that's neither here nor there. But uh, she had talked about how the estimated numbers that Trump would mention were due to kids at the behest of TikTok influencers going out and ordering tickets or requesting tickets. And so they expected a million people to show up and no one showed up. It was very much a we're going to do everything in our power to say whatever we can or do whatever we can to keep people from going. And then we want to act like it's some major victory when you get say, well, we had this many people. Ah, ha, ha, you could have had more. That's silly. And I think that there is a sort of temptation to silliness in politics that uh, we need to either be honest about and just embrace or we need to repudiate. If it's going to be a clown show all day, every day, I want those jabronis that I pay taxes to support in Washington with talcum powder on their faces and red bouncy noses that squeak. All of that said, all of that said, I think you're right that this is a case that if not uh, really paid attention to will be forgotten. 
And it's significant, again, because it's uh, Justice Roberts, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, siding with the quote-unquote liberals on the court, uh, which, again, kind of goes into the you know, laws say what five people in robes on a bench say it says. But it uh, also really gets into this question over immigration. Immigration is a hot-button issue uh, because central to the idea of a state or nation uh, you have to have borders. People can hem and haw about that all you want. If you do not have borders, you do not have a state. That is not a that is not a statement of whether immigration is good or bad. It's just reality. One of the necessary things about a nation is defined borders and the ability to enforce those borders. I am for a lenient immigration policy. Uh, at my house, I have a few rules if you want to come to my house. Come in through the front door and let me know you're coming. Obviously, you cannot apply that just directly, but there are principles there. Of, look, if you want to come to this country or any country, come in through the front door or through the back door if that's what you're told to do. Like, hey, this is the door that everyone uses. Use that door. And just announce that you're coming and knock when you come in. But uh, to get away from that, though, there again is that implication of the question of, okay, how does the Supreme Court interact with law? Is it proper? Is it appropriate? And interpreting and applying law, even if I were to read this uh, decision and end up disagreeing with the logic of it, I do think that that is more in line with what they're actually supposed to be doing. So I would have to really sit down and read these opinions and the dissents and all that, but this isn't as egregious, I think. And I'm open to having my mind changed, but again, just bear in mind, part of libertarianism is having a more open borders policy, so strict immigration rules aren't always going to be what I'm for. Okay. Yeah. So I think I've got three different perspectives on this. Uh, the first is that, if I remember correctly, DACA, uh, DACA might have been – I'm just going to check it. feels like it was an executive order, um, that it's not something that passed through Congress. I'm trying to – figure out exactly um uh it's an executive branch memorandum so it's not it wasn't it didn't go through congress um which that immediately uh leaves up a red flag for me because at that point it's just okay what does one person feel the law should be uh with regard to immigration and so i've got i've got a problem with that specific aspect of it um, that being said, I'm like you, I'm, I'm for a more lenient immigration policy. Um, and given that this is a, this is a legal immigration policy, even if it's one that some people don't like, it's, it's a legal immigration policy. Uh, and it's one that's been around now for eight years. Um, it, it, uh, uh, and, and the, the key here for me is this is something that even if I don't like how it was set up, um, even if I don't like how it was uh, implemented, uh, this is not something that's just, oh, we're not going to 
deport illegal immigrants. This is um, if you want to be a part of this program, you got to apply. Uh, this is uh, this is not a passive thing on the part of those who want to be a part of it. And so with the program, it on the one hand, like I said, I'm for a lenient policy. And on the other hand, this is this isn't even as lenient as it could have been. Um, you know, that that number, six hundred ninety thousand uh, applicants, that feels low. Uh, honestly, that feels low. uh compared to what it could be uh, and certainly compared to uh, the illegal immigrant population as a whole. And so, you know, it's something where I want something like this uh, to exist. Um, I want a program like this to exist. Uh, I, I don't think we have, uh, this is just purely my opinion. I don't think we have uh, any business deporting, individuals who came over here as uh as children um by and large uh i just my one gripe really my only gripe with this is uh the fact that it was implemented by executive order rather through congress now there's an argument to be made that it wouldn't have happened otherwise and that might be fair um but uh, conjecture about whether or not it's going to happen, in, in my opinion, is not justification for the president stepping in and saying we're doing this. Um, and so, with the implementation, I, I would rather have something uh, that goes through Congress as awful of a process as that can be, um, and isn't just set up by one individual. But it, it seems, based off the little bit that I've read. Uh, that that's basically what the four dissenting judges had a problem with. It's not really that they had a problem with the judgment itself. It's that they just wish that DACA would have been reviewed uh, as far as its legality. Uh, it's worth noting that Trump has already said he's going to challenge uh, this again. He is he is bound and determined uh, to strike down DACA. Um, but I think more so than, you know, we had this this idea of repeal and replace with Obamacare. Um, and, and that's the phrase you heard thrown around repeatedly, at least until the individual mandate went away. Uh, this is very much a case where you need, if you're going to get rid of this, you need to have something else at the ready. Uh, and I am not convinced, uh, that that is going to end up happening, uh, with this program. I, I would tend to agree. The, the response, I guess, from that would be, Instead of adding new laws, we should enforce the ones that we already have. And on one level, especially as a gun owner, I'm sympathetic to that uh, because that's an argument that I make uh, that isn't one of the more like hardline libertarian arguments. Instead of trying to pass new laws constantly, let's actually like look at what's already on the books and say, okay, are we actually enforcing this? Because you can pass all the laws you want. It doesn't matter if you don't enforce them. Um, it, it just it doesn't. The, the speed limits. Like it doesn't matter if you have a speed limit up, sign up. If a someone who can stop you does not stop you when they catch you breaking the speed limit. So there's that. Uh, there's also I think that your point about executive orders and making those is a salient point. 
Um, I believe this is a direct quote from Obama. I am open to correction if not, but it is a sentiment that he expressed frequently throughout his presidency. I have a pen and I have a phone. The idea being, of course, him conceding that in his role as the chief executive officer, so to speak, that it is not his job to make rules. He can pin memos and he can call people and talk to them and say, hey, why aren't we doing this? What can we do to get this off the ground? And that sort of thing. So when a president uh, oversteps his bounds, so to speak, to say it's a functionally uh, under the guise of an executive order, that is a problem. It is a problem I'm not surprised by. It is a problem that I've kind of grown numb to because it's, oh, surprise, someone in government abusing their authority. Who knew? But especially since, and this might get me in trouble, the days of Lincoln, whatever good things you might want to say about Abraham Lincoln, he didn't free slaves and he abused the executive branch. Those are two things that are going to get me thrown to the howling mobs, and that's okay, because I believe them. But since the days of Lincoln especially, the executive branch of government has been abused and used to push agendas, for better or for worse. So that is something that should always be under review, and I think that the dissenting judges there are right to say, hold on, this is an executive order. If you want a law passed, go through Congress, go through the House of Representatives, go through the Senate. Put it on the president's desk. And and that's a good and right thing. But this is always going to come down to, again, because of the composition of the court, because of how the court works, it is always going to be a majority of people saying, we want this outcome, and the minority saying, we don't necessarily disagree, we just disagree that this is how you should go about getting that outcome. And that's just the problem. On the note about Trump vowing to defeat DACA, uh, uh, there's the old, uh, I don't know how familiar everyone is with Highlander, uh, one of the great action movies of the 80s with Connor McCloud. Uh, and then it spawned a great television series with the character Duncan McCloud. Uh, did, you know, that, did you know there can only be one? Correct. They, or as Sean Connery said, if there can be only one. And so aside from the great casting choices of Christopher Lambert as a Scotsman and Sean Connery as an Egyptian metallurgist in service to Her Majesty of Spain, who also lived in Japan for a few centuries, there's that idea of they, the, the immortals are drawn to each other. They can detect each other. They have to search each other. They have to seek each other out and kill each other. The analogy kind of falls apart. It doesn't really hold together that well. But in the same way, DACA represents a major thing that Trump campaigned on of, hey, are you tired of these illegals coming into this country and stealing your jobs? I'm going to build that wall with my bare hands and stop them. And because you can just fly over a wall, you can be shipped around a wall, any number of other things, the wall is symbolic. And people will say, well, it's walls keep people in. Okay, whatever. The wall is symbolic. It is not in, like, it will, it is a physical wall. The plan is to build a physical wall. It is a symbol of keeping people out unless we want to let them in. DACA, from a legislative point of view, 
is a is a just hole in the wall that people want patched up. Now, whether we say it's fair or not to send people who were children home, I think a reasonable compromise would be let's set up a process for dreamers to be able to become, if they're not already, residents. Give them a pathway to permanent residency and then to citizenship. Remove as much red tape as possible. Make it such, like, let's give them 15 years, let's say. Just, I pulled an arbitrary number out. Let's give them 10, 15 years to actually go through all that red tape. And if they just don't do it, fine, send them back, because they're making a conscious choice at that point. But, and Chris, I think we can both agree, even if we were hardline about immigration, I think we could both agree there is a world of difference between someone who is doing their due diligence to be here legally, to be in the United States legally, and a person who knows that they are not legally authorized to be here and doesn't care. That uh, should be the priority. Well, and, and the problem is um, you have a lot of people uh, who will stereotype the first group as being a part of the second. Absolutely, uh, and that's not fair. Well, but that—that's—that's. That's, I don't want to say that that's Trump's main voter base because I, I don't want to stereotype his voter base either. Um, but at the same time, you're one of the few who wants to hold to that principle. <clears throat> at the I same time, laugh at that. I'm sorry. You you see plenty of that though. I mean, you know, you you see, well, just just send them back. They're uh, they're you know, you'll hear words thrown around like lazy and, uh, you know, you heard Trump run on the phrase they're bad hombres and things like that. And, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that just doesn't help the discussion one bit uh, that doesn't that doesn't actually deal with the problem itself. Um, and, of course, you know, the use of the phrase bad hombres and uh, the discussion of drugs uh, and whatnot coming in across the border um, speaks specifically to the issue of of uh mexicans uh and other hispanics uh immigrating in uh but in reality the immigration system as a whole is an absolute disaster um there's a there's a preacher i'm not going to mention his name because i haven't talked to him about this before there's a preacher i know uh who went overseas uh uh went overseas to i think some of the uh the uh, pacific islands um uh, maybe somewhere in Asia, no, somewhere in Asia, uh, and I'm not going to be more specific than that, uh, but but got married, um, and they're having issues getting his wife back home, like or wife back here, rather, to, to where should be her home now, uh, you know, so she can, you know, live with her husband, um, and even that has been rejected multiple times. Now, obviously, you're going to have some people who who abuse uh, the system in various different ways. Um, I'm of the opinion you've, there's a certain level of abuse of the system you just have to live with. Um, it, you have to live with the fact that at some point, you know, someone uh, who you wouldn't otherwise want here, someone uh, uh, who is potentially a threat uh, not based off of where they're from, but based off of a pattern of behavior in their life specifically, 
uh, is going to get through, is going to slip through the cracks, that sort of thing. Um, but you sort of have to live with that uh, if you're going to have uh, anything more than just we're not letting anyone in at all. And so, you know, like we've said, I am all for reviewing DACA, uh, reviewing it, its constitutionality, uh, letting Congress I don't know if evaluate it is is right because that seems like the Supreme Court's job, uh, but also more to the point, instituting its own program. Um, I, I I am all for all that, uh, but I am only of the opinion that DACA should be repealed if there's a replacement ready to go. Because if DACA is repealed and there's not a replacement ready to go, uh, then I am worried that we're going to start aggressively uh, deporting uh, close to 700,000 immigrants who, for a period of eight years, the government told they could be here. Right. And to that point immediately, uh, people tend to view Obama as being easier on immigration. If my memory serves, more people were deported under the Obama administration than any other before him. I don't know what Trump's numbers look like, and before I just commit to that Obama factoid as hard fact, I would want to actually be able to like send someone a spreadsheet that tracks it. But I say all of that to say, like, a deportation is not fun. Like, I do not like the idea of even if someone is like outside of like violent criminals, because like I lose any sympathy I had for someone once they start hurting other people. So I don't care what happens to those specific individuals, but I would feel sympathy and I feel bad for the people around them that are affected by deportation. Yeah. And to your point uh, about uh, our, uh, our brother and fellow worker, um, I don't know who you're referring to. I'm not going to demand further clarification in or out of the podcast, but um, I, but that, that anecdote really puts to lie because a lot of people have this notion that if you marry an American citizen, well, you can just go to America and you can just show up and uh, we like, we welcome you with open arms. Oh, Hey, great. You're, you're here. And that's not true. It's hard work. And I even know a family who the, the patriarch of the family, the, the head of the family, one, I love him. He's one of my favorite people. And as silly as it sounds, I do not mean this stereotypically. He was the proprietor of one of my favorite little Mexican restaurants in the area. And I loved when I was younger being able to just go and eat there because I knew the people, I liked the people, and I had a lot of respect for this man. And he made good food. So it was all of these good things coming together at Good Food for a Reasonable Price. And he, like, when he wasn't working, if I would go to that restaurant, I'd order a plate and he and I would sit and talk together. And talk about how he had to work his tail off to be able to get over here. And he's a nice man. He doesn't have a criminal background. He is a hard worker and an entrepreneur. And and the rest of his family, like, in, like there are individuals in his family that I'm not just the biggest fan of, but they're not criminals. They're not people that are breaking the law or doing anything wrong. It's just they're, I don't go out of my way to spend time with them. And so I don't want to just uproot people's lives that are doing what they're supposed to do. But I think, one, to your point about stereotyping and ignorance, the big thing is just kind of challenging that and just 
asking, what exactly do you think a person has to do to legally come to the United States and stay for any amount of time? Because what started really changing my thinking on that was years ago, I don't remember the context, but I believe it was a Huff Post video, as much as I'm loath to cite the Huffington Post, where they just said common misconceptions about immigration. And one of them was that the majority of people are undocumented or that all of these people that are undocumented come over and they don't care. And it pointed out, I don't remember the percentages, but it had a citation attached to it that I followed and was legitimate. But it was a significant percentage of people, if they're not here legally, it's because their paperwork is lapsed. And that especially hits home for me because I look at that, I'm like, that's not their fault. But assuming that they're actually trying to do the paperwork and do their due diligence, you mentioned, like, saying working with immigration is a nightmare. You can replace that with any government agency or office, and that's true. Because, like, for me, I just think about, like, as much of a headache as it is to go to the DMV and get my driver's license. Like, that nightmare of a thing I never want to do again because it's so inconvenient. Like, if it's any, like, if trying to come over here legally is anything like trying to deal with the people at the DMV, especially some of them I've had to deal with, I get why a lot of people don't even bother trying to come over legally because it's a headache. And so if we can understand that and help others understand that while also helping people that are at a loss and like, look, I want to do the right thing. I want to come over legally. I want to do this and that. Helping them, finding people who know the system and say, hey, can you help this person navigate it or can we streamline it even? I would like, for instance, I don't know how it would work, but I would like for people to be able to start working on applications for visas or their green cards and start actually getting that paperwork set it out at U.S. embassies in their own countries. Being able to go to the embassy in that country and say, I want to come to the United States. What do I need to do? And get the process started while they're there so that they can show up. And if nothing else, they can say, I've started the process. But again, like that's a long ways off. Yeah, I it, it's something where people need to realize um, the vast majority of people that are coming across whatever border want to be here and and want to uh, you know want to build good and decent lives for themselves. And furthermore, one of the stereotypes about many of them, many immigrants that come across the border is true. They're going to they're going to work harder and take and take certain jobs uh, that you and I don't really want to take um, because they want to be here. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, I hesitate to, to use any stereotypes in any context, but it says something uh, that they're willing to come over here knowing that it is an uphill battle. And in many cases knowing or at least finding out pretty quickly that there's a bunch of people here who don't want them here and willing to stick it out anyway. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, depending on what part of the country you're in and what industry you go into and where specifically you're immigrating from, um, it's a challenge. 
uh, it, it's a challenge to be over here uh, and 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 build that that uh, that that life for you and your family, um, you know. And so you, you talk about wanting to help those individuals. Uh, the very first thing we can do to help them is be sure we have a proper understanding of who they're who they are and why they're here. And any stereotypical understanding is going to get in the way of that. It's going to get in the way of people who would otherwise be advocates for them uh, in the legal system. Um, it's going to get in the way of getting stuff done. Uh, you know, the, the legal system, part of the problem is it's just so clogged uh, with different issues, different individuals trying to do uh, gener- generally good things. But that's true with a lot of different issues too not just not just immigration um but the system is just clogged to the point of you know taking years and years and years on end to get anything done um and then beyond that you know people all of a sudden being told that they have to uh go back home after making their home over here are you kidding me i that that's that's the one i can't wrap my head around and that's that's what daca specifically is protecting against um, is the idea that you've got 700,000 or so, it's ballpark, individuals who are over here, who came over here mostly as children, uh, who are receiving protections from deportation uh, through a system where they have to apply, uh, where they have to go through the system. Um, but protection from being deported from where they have built their lives Um at a certain point, uh, you know, at, at a certain point when it comes to immigrants, when it comes to individuals who have moved here from another country, um, their their legal status, I don't want to say it is completely irrelevant, uh, but we have to be, we, we have to ask the question, what reason do we have? To, def- to deport people who have been here for 15 years, 20 years. Now, as you've said, in the case of violent crime, well, that, that's a legitimate reason, right? Um, there was a, uh, right after I moved here uh, to Oklahoma, not to more specifically, but to Oklahoma, there's a very famous um, sports uh, 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 sport radio host, a guy named Bob Berry Jr., um, probably the most well-known radio host in the area at the time, as far as sports are concerned, which were in Oklahoma, he might've been just the most well-known radio host period. Um, extremely likable guy. Uh, and he was out riding his motorcycle one day with his wife and, uh, struck and killed by a vehicle. Um, the vehicle was driven by an illegal immigrant. I believe the guy was intoxicated. Yeah, that, that guy should go back. He's, um, you know, this is a violent criminal, uh, who has not demonstrated, uh, any positive reason for being here and has demonstrated something clearly negative. Uh, but outside of cases like that, we really ought to question our own, and I'm going to use a term that's dangerous to use with regard to government, but I think is absolutely warranted here. We really have to question our own morality. Uh, if we're sending people away from where they have built up their lives um, for what are otherwise arbitrary reasons. Um, in the case of violent criminal activity, I'm 100% with you. Um, that's a pretty clear reason. 
uh, and uh, and deportation uh, should be on the table in that case. But failing that and fit, keeping in mind, of course, here that failing that is going to represent 99 percent plus of illegal immigrants aren't going to come over and commit violent crimes. Um, there has you know, we, we, we can't sit here and pretend like, oh, it's OK, we're just sending them back home. They, they've made their home here. This is their home. Um, you know, and, and, and there's, you know, that's not to say that we shouldn't do anything. It's to say that we've got to, you know, we, we've got to be sure that the system that's in place, uh, is in place to protect against destroying families, destroying, uh, destroying lives that people have built up over here. Um, and, and so I, it really, really sickens me, uh, when I see people talk about just simply sending them back. Um, with without considering, I, I really think people just don't grasp uh, the reality uh, of what they're doing. They see these illegal immigrants as being the other and be and, you know, we can't have the other here. And they'll have all these different reasons that aren't necessarily true, but are stuck in their heads for why we can't have the other here. They're taking our jobs. They're all violent criminals. You know, they're all these different sorts of things. Um without really grasping what is actually happening. There's a disconnect between uh, what they're being presented either by the media or by their own biases or frankly by the president at some, uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, there's a disconnect between that and who these people actually are. Um, you know, and so uh, I'll be, I'll be curious to see uh, what ends up happening because what, what's been made clear by the Supreme court is that, um, you know, DACA, DACA is up for evaluation. Uh, you know, we're going to find out if this is a, uh, if this is something that's going to last long term, if it's going to be amended, or if the president is going to be successful in striking it down. Um, but I, I hope what doesn't happen is that we start deporting people arbitrarily, um, deporting people who have built up their lives over here for no good reason. Right. And I would be curious, um, an argument, a counter argument and reply come to me. I would be curious as to the application of the question of cruel and unusual punishment being invoked. Uh, the idea that constitutionally people are protected from punishments that are out of proportion, that are both out of proportion with, uh, to the crime committed, but also that are out of step with what is considered the normative uh, punitive measures. I I put that forward knowing that some will argue, well, they're not citizens, so they don't have the same rights. I would push back and say that if we expect them to follow our laws while they are here, then we should afford them the same protections that we would grant to anyone else we expect to follow our laws. But and also, okay, which rights are you willing to suspend for people that are not citizens? So, obviously, the right to vote is withheld to to citizenship, but that is a specific that that is largely, I think, because of historic precedent. But all of that to say, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. I would be interested to see questions about the appropriateness of deportation as a punitive measure. 
And that's one of the, that's, I think, something that'll have to come up. Sam, is there anything else you want to talk about before we close? Nothing really comes to mind that would justify inclusion. Yeah, we, uh, we're, I think we're sort of, this point kind of waiting to see what happens uh in a lot of different ways um you know we're uh, trump just had his first rally and we'll see if there are more coming um uh covid numbers are spiking um and that that's going to definitely be something worth paying attention to uh here at bridge creek we've just sort of figured out our plans as far as how we're going to re-implement things we're hoping to be back uh 100 percent like normal by september but at the same time we also recognize that you know we could have a major outbreak between now and then or after that point that causes us to have to revert back to what we were doing you know a month and a half ago and so you know it, it, it it's something i i've i'm gonna use those dangerous words i feel like uh we're on the edge of with regard to this pandemic and with regard to this election we're we're sort of right in the eye of the storm as it were um where we're sort of waiting to see what happens and waiting to see how things progress um and so you know next week we may have to figure out something else to talk about or uh, we may have to, we may have so much news to cover that we don't, we don't cover it all. Uh, we don't cover it all in one session. So, uh, if that's it, I'll go ahead and close this out. Sounds good to me. Thank you for listening to the deep in the tank podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.